Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. In this episode, I sat down with Michelle Jones to talk about her work as an artist, activist, and historian. Michelle tells us about the projects that she's currently working on, and she reflects on what it's like to be a third-year graduate student working on her dissertation proposal. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from reentry for women in the state of Indiana, having a soft place to land after incarceration, to her fight for sentence modification so that she could attend grad school after having spent 20 years in prison. Michelle speaks candidly about what it means to her to have a spiritual practice and a need to have a support system while inside and upon release. She tells us a bit about a project that she's a part of to develop an app that is designed to help people find community resources upon release. We also talk about the importance of higher education in prison and why it is important to improve the quality of life for incarcerated people. I asked Michelle about her art installation, Point of Triangulation, and she talks about the need for arts-based research. We round out the hour by addressing the problematic notion of exceptionalism with regards to prisoners and former prisoners. And Michelle's response to being thingified and objectified by the media, as well as what it was like to have academics attempt to co-opt the work that she and other women historians did inside. Michelle is a third-year doctoral student in the American Studies program at New York University. She is interested in excavating the collateral consequences of criminal convictions for people and families directly impacted by mass incarceration. In addition to participating in a scholarly project challenging the narratives of the history of women's prison with a group of incarcerated scholars. Even while incarcerated, Michelle published and presented her research findings to dispel notions about the reach and intellectual capacity of justice-involved women. Michelle's advocacy extends beyond the classroom through collaborations and opportunities to speak truth to power. While incarcerated, she presented legislative testimony on a reentry alternative she created for long-term incarcerated people that was approved by the Indiana State Interim Committee on the Criminal Code. And she has joined the advisory boards of the Lumina Foundation and the Urban Institute. She's a founding member and chair of the board of Constructing Our Future, a reentry alternative for women created by incarcerated women in Indiana. She is a 2017-2018 Beyond the Bars Fellow, a 2017-2018 Research Fellow at the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University, a 2018-2019 Ford Foundation Bearing Witness Fellow with Art for Justice, a 2019 SOZI Right of Return Fellow, a 2019 Code for America Fellow, and a 2019-2020 Mural Arts Fellow. Michelle is currently under contract with the New Press to publish the history of Indiana's carceral institutions for women with fellow incarcerated and formerly incarcerated scholars. As an artist, Michelle is interested in finding ways to funnel her research pursuits into theater, dance, and photography. Her original co-authored play, The Duchess of Stringtown, was produced in December 2017 in Indianapolis and New York City. And her artist installation about stigma, point of triangulation, 
ran from September 26 to October 1st, 2019 in New York. Please stay tuned. So we yes. were at the um, Mumi conference in Mississippi, yes. um, in Jackson, yes. Mississippi, for folks that uh, don't know. Mumi is the uh, making and unmaking of mass incarceration conference that was uh, put together by Garrett Felber. And um, we met through a mutual friend, um, Bria Willingham, and yeah. uh, we were basically just sitting there, you know, four of us, um, including Dr. Aaron Corbett, um, just chatting, right? And then there came a point in the conversation, you know, we Bria had introduced us all and, and what have you, and um, there came a point in the conversation where we were talking and uh, the keynote um that I did at uh, NYU came up and you stopped me and you were like wait a minute you did a keynote I did the keynote last year and I was like wait what I'm like you're that Michelle <laughs> we started screaming we're like wait oh oh my god and and that was like the whole interaction when we stopped everything got up and kind of gave each other a great big hug and then started over again and we're like okay now right. we're, okay we're good now like we're good. Now. Right, 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 right. So right. Like um, we know each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I just thought that you know, one of those like really beautiful moments that, you know, has um it will stay with me, you know, forever. Like um I'm never going to forget that. Um, but I wanted to share that, you know, just to give folks a sense that, you know, um, we, we do know each other um, and, you know, we became fast friends and, and what have you. And, um, yeah, I'm just really, really thrilled to, to have you here today and uh, to get a little bit of your time um, and have you share a little bit about, you know, uh, your work. I know that you're an artist, a historian, um, you're an activist, um, you wear many different hats and you wear them simultaneously. Um, so I don't think that there's, you know, really like a way to separate that out, but you do have different projects going on. So maybe you can, you know, start wherever you'd like. Okay. Well, um, I am a third year doctoral student at NYU and the School of Social and Cultural Analysis. Um, I'm getting a, a PhD in American studies and, excuse me, and right now in this semester, I'm in my dissertation proposal phase, and that is both exciting and intimidating. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I'm learning a lot. That. That's, you know, it's a huge, a huge step. It's, the time has flown by. I remember in prison, we used to talk about um, the way in which you lived your life in prison. Um, was evidenced by how you thought your time went. Mm -hmm. So if you were a person who um, fought against yourself and, 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 and was a perpetual victim or someone who, um, you know, looked for trouble and, and it met them and um, was always scheming and lying and stealing and whatever, um, time seemed to go very, very slow for those folks, right? Mm -hmm. but people who were like, about their business, about healing, restoration, about about um, being involved in things, giving things, giving back to people other than themselves, and like planning, really planning for the door. Um, time flew, time mm. flew, and I, 
I'm in, I'm in that energy now with this dissertation project because I was like, wait a minute, I was just telling people I was a second year doctoral student, and here I am already in the second semester of the third year, and it's just like, I, it blows my mind, my own mind sometimes that I'm just out of prison, like I'm only a couple years, mm-hmm. I'm not even three years out of prison, but mm-hmm. that's testament of, of course, I have a spiritual relationship uh, with God, and I. I have a spirituality that undergirds everything that I do. Um, I have a, I feel like very strongly I have a calling on my life. And um, all those things kind of are the engine running underneath all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do the doctoral program. I'm working on my dissertation. I'm excited, you know, about um, getting into that. I'm also board chair of Constructing Our Future, which is a reentry um, organization that was founded, created and founded by incarcerated women. And as we get out, we're taking over more of the leadership of the organization. Right now, I'm board chair, and we have two other uh, women who are uh, development director and housing and community coordinator and coordinators, and we're still working with the women on the inside. And this whole thing is about providing a safe place to land when they walk out of the door. Mm. Um, in, in the state of Indiana, um, it is the, the statistics are horrible. I mean... There is little to no transitional housing that is outside of the carceral context. Mm-hmm. Meaning, yes, there's some transitional housing inside Madison Correctional Facility grounds, yeah. um, but where is the home environment, safe place, non-carceral institutional logic ran or um, facilities for us to land? Guess what? There's less than a hundred beds in the wow. Wow. And let me um, let me just interject here uh, because I want to uh, clarify uh, for folks listening. Um, you were incarcerated in Indiana, but you're doing your Ph.D. at NYU just so that. Right. Folks right. Sorry. Like yeah, I was in, in Indiana. No, it's, it's OK. It's fine. Right, I just want right, to, right. to so add that. Foot to in. I need to clarify that. Um, so, yeah, I was incarcerated in the state of Indiana for 20 years and seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got out of. I was one of those people who were um, able to file a sentence modification that was actually heard by the judge and responded to. And uh, he was able, he let me out six weeks before my out date so that I could apply to New York and start school. Mm. Um, but they originally denied me. And oh, wow, um, really? I, I said, yeah. Um, yeah, after 20 years, after 20 years of of just doing every single thing I can, having the support of uh, a couple of legislators, having the support of a strong volunteer community, having the support of the Anana Black Caucus. It's, it was another organization. I, I was kind of stunned when they, um, when they denied me, but I kind of expected it in a certain aspect. And I was almost crestfallen. And a lot of people was like, mm-hmm, I saw, I see she ain't going to get out to October. I wonder what that's going to do to her getting in this school and this, that, and the other. And it, it, was, it was talkers and, and drama. And I just simply got quiet. I got quiet and kept up with my meditation and spiritual practice with my affirmations. And one day I was led to like, girl, why are you sitting around for other people to communicate what you need? And mm-hmm. I wrote a letter to the judge myself. And I cc the prosecutor versus the way it is in our state. Yeah. Um, the prosecutor has a committee 
who sees all sentence modifications that come in before they go to the judge. Oh, wow. So this prosecuting committee then decides if it's worthy enough of a sentence modification request to go before the judge. So I was originally denied by the prosecutor in his camp. Um, and I was like, why, why am I, why would I allow that to be the, the final answer, right? So I wrote a letter to the judge directly and CC'd and I just laid it all out. I said, if you have any, any respect for the notion of real, your quote unquote belief in rehabilitation and preparing people for the door, who, who, what other person or what other situation with the support that I had, with the money in the backing that I had, with the, the, the guaranteed, um, you know, stipend and housing and, and, and um, dental and medical, you know, what, what scenario would you approve if you wouldn't prove a scenario where a person had worked out every aspect of her reentry and just needed six weeks? Yeah. I asked them, you know, really honestly, like, well, what do you need? What what would work? What What's would you give an honest, fair hearing? And I guess it resonated with him um, because I said, look, I, I'm ready to go. You've seen the, the, the record on file. You've seen that I have all pieces in place to hit the door running. Can you give me six weeks? And they, and they called me in for hearing. At that time, I did not even know if I would get it or not. And in the hearing, and I was feeling kind of low, and uh, going back to the county jail is traumatic um, yeah. because of the filth and the uh, the way in which they treat people like ten dogs. Um, being while they experience incarceration is one thing, experiencing um, county jails is a whole other animal. And if you've been away from county jail for a while, it's a bit it's a bit jarring to get back to it. So. They heard my, they heard um, the evidence and um, he, he granted my sentence modification and I literally walked out the door. Well, they lost me in the county jail. They couldn't find me. I was supposed to walk out that day. I didn't. I walked out the next day and um, got some clothes and things together and I was on a plane the very next day. Wow. And it was, it was its own kind of you, you have this really high exhilaration, mm-hmm. but then you also have this anxiety because you don't know anything. Yeah. You don't, all you know is just the pieces of paper that you have, but you don't know how to be in that space. And I, I, I set up with a tremendous challenge for myself because I was figuring out how to be in that space and also enter a grad program. Yeah. So, the, people, the people who were um, at different levels than I was. Um, it took a lot. That first year, getting past that first year was a major benchmark for me. Mm-hmm. I actually had a party. <laughs> oh, that's I was like, cool. I need to celebrate. I was like, I need to celebrate having survived this. Absolutely. First year of reentry and everything that was happening. Um, but, I, um, you know, it worked. It, and mm-hmm. I did it. And I learned so much about myself. I know that I cannot do this work without a spiritual grounding. Yeah. That's the main thing that I learned. I was like, oh no. Um, as different challenges came up, I felt like I was slipping. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh no, you need to get back to your practice. What is your practice? Yeah. What What did you do? How did you preserve yourself incarcerated 20 years and seven months? Oh, you had a practice. 
you need to get back to your practice. And mm-hmm. and that's one of these things I bring myself back for again because oddly enough, <laughs> some of the stressors the stressors here in the outside world appear greater to me than some of the stressors that I dealt with inside. I know mm-hmm. it sounds odd, but the stakes seem higher here, oddly. Yeah. Um, after 20 years, because after 20 years and seven months, you learn how to do it. You mm-hmm. learn how to, it is a repeating pattern of mediocrity. And so you learn how to survive in it well. And, and, and most some of us learn how to survive in it well. I mean, obviously everybody doesn't, and everybody doesn't do it at the same level. But um, those that do, master the routine of it right because it's very little that changes when you come home everything is up for grabs change is constant <laughs> yeah, change yeah. is constant and yeah. unpredictable and coming from multiple angles at at a time mm-hmm. right? so yeah. this is the reason why constructing our future is so important we want to create a safe place for women to land when they come out who don't who are simply trying to come out get a job or go into the construction field uh, we're, we want to make that landing safe um, and supported because I think that that was the key to my my transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my, the parole officer, the pro docs originally denied my uh, interstate compact. Oh, wow. They said, oh, we don't, what if she doesn't make it in the program? What if she, what if she fails? Uh, we don't want any more homeless in New York. Which, you know, and that was their, that was their, they were expecting me to fail. What I'm picking up, um, or what I want to pick up on is, uh, you know, what you're describing here that I, I don't want um, to lose in a conversation because I think it's so vital um, that reentry is a really difficult process um, and that it is the process and that even if you have all of the supports available to you um, and resources backing you, that it can still be daunting. And that, oh, you yeah. know, that we treat reentry as a thing where it's like, okay, you know, not everyone, obviously, um, but, you know, the notion is that, oh, well, you'll get out. All we have to do is get you, you know, ID, get you a job, um, you know, and, uh, and and some housing and that's it. But there's no discussion about the quality of those things and all of the other things that are, that go along with that. And that's what you're getting yeah. at. Um, here yeah. and I think yeah. that's totally so so that you, you're bringing up a major point that um, even if you've got all the support you're still going to go through a certain a certain level of uh, mental emotional anxiety um, and stress and dealing about the dealing with the unknown and the expectations that are immediately placed on you that this is the surveillance that's immediately placed on you it, it makes a person very anxious um, I remember, you know, going to parole office, going to parole, reporting to parole, and the whole process of them standing there with their body armor on and, and all their gear and and searching everything that you have and taking through the metal detector. It just felt like a um, reasserting that carceral, um, uh, it, you were reentering a carceral space. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and it was. And it, and it was anxiety producing on its own. But I also want, you know, when I think about that, I think about 
I'm a part of a group called Code for Indianapolis, and what we're doing is we're creating a reentry resource app for our city, and hopefully it'll expand to the state, that is verified resources that we know, that you know will serve and assist formerly incarcerated people. Oh, that's um, And one of the reasons, yeah, one of the reasons why we got here is because after we did our surveys and we started talking to people, we realized that this feeling of anxiety is not just, I just didn't go through it or she just didn't go through it. It, it was a, it was a, it was a through line. Yeah. Many women who responded to our surveys and we were like, hmm, while, and, and, it, and it ranked higher than employment and it ranked higher in these surveys than housing. Yeah. Like feeling anxious was at the number one. And I said, wow, what can we do? And, and our team, we got an amazing team in Indianapolis. Like, what can we do to eliminate some of that? And one of the ways is, is that you need to know exactly where you can go to get the resources and the assistance you need. And you need to know that they're going to help you and they're not going to discriminate against you. And you need to know up ahead, uh, ahead of time what you need to bring, ID, referral, whatnot, whatever. Because we felt like in our own experience, just that not knowing how to jump through all of these hoops that are created by these bureaucracies and these uh, care, so-called caregiving organizations, um, we had to figure out a help how to give um, our people a master cheat sheet mm-hmm. so they can eliminate some of that anxiety, right? We also have a post-incarcerated uh, women's network, and it's a Facebook group. It's a closed group, and um, anybody can be in it across the country. Um, and we verify that you were actually formerly incarcerated because we want everybody in that group to know that they are amongst the same folk and yeah. that no one's going to get on that, get on there and troll them and make them feel bad for, mm-hmm. uh, and not recriminate, recrim, uh, reincriminate them for, um, trying to live, yeah. Right? Yeah. trying to live and celebrate life and uh, support one another. So these different lanes that I'm in are all, they all push towards advocacy and activism towards changing the quality of life of incarcerated people and changing the quality of life of formerly incarcerated people until we can dismantle the entire thing. Fantastic. That's fantastic. This is what I'm about. That's what I'm about. Period. I, I want people to stop suffering to the level in which they are suffering and what we can do with what we have right now as we continue to work towards dismantling and abolition. Um, I'm one of those abolitionists that doesn't feel like let's just only work for abolition and not concern ourselves with the day-to-day. I'm not one of those. Yeah. yeah. I feel like... No, neither am I. I mean, it's the the yeah. current conditions matter. The conditions in prisons yeah. matter. Um, yeah. And I, I think that most of the you know, most of the organizers and folks that I know um, that are serious about abolition uh, also believe that, that we're not waiting for this day, you know, off in the future, this utopia um, that, you know, folks imagine that that work is happening now, that it, you have to be about this stuff um, in order to get there, that there's not going to be just, you know, a day when we're not fighting, we're not struggling, we're not you know, working against uh, these institutions and these barriers and everything else that, you know, um, is getting in the way. And it's, you know, making people 
miserable and making them suffer. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Wow. I think it's so important because what that may mean is that you, we may need to bring in some, bring in more, more, add more things to the carceral space, which means I'm an advocate for higher education in prison. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, I want everybody to have access to higher education outside of, but I know that a higher access to higher education is one of the only things that can counter collateral consequences of criminal conviction. Yep. So I know that. So then I say, then we need to bring that into the prison. Well, uh, some abolitionists are like, that's adding more. That's adding, that's, in, that's in expanding the carceral state. It's keeping it robust. And I, I draw the line with that argument when it's about an incarcerated person's quality of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the line. That's, a, that's my line. Um, if it improves their quality of life meaningfully, then mm -hmm. do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, you know, I have um, two sons that are sentenced to life in prison and yeah. they are at a facility that is lacking programs um, that, you know, just a couple of years ago had a rebellion. And one of the demands of the folks that were involved in that re rebellion was um, educational programs, vocational programs. Uh, they they want that. They're craving that. And it's not the only facility in the country that is, you know, um, that doesn't have those things. And it doesn't have those things for a majority of the people inside, right? Because when we talk about these programs, um, I think it's also important to recognize that they, they are for a small group of people, right? That they're not not everybody who's in the prison is allowed to or able to participate in these programs. Correct. And I think that that has to change. Um, I think that has to be one of the, one of the asks um, that we push for um, is to say that, you know, we need to have more people um, have access to these programs and not just people who are getting out in a year or two or what have you. Right. Um, that, that well, that's folks in the battle, know. right? Yeah, I've been in battle with the whole higher education conversation because a lot of people went in and talked to legislators about the value of access to higher education in prison uh, and reducing recidivism, but they didn't, they failed to add in the conversation about the quality of life of an incarcerated person. Absolutely. Um, someone serving life without parole to still have a life that is meaningful, it has a life that is meaningful and valuable to everyone else. But having access to a higher education is something that would enhance that living experience. Mm -hmm. And to say that only people who are getting out in a certain period of time should have access um, devalues the personhood, devalues the personhood of people with life without parole. Absolutely. And um, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, but yeah. That, that conversation is ongoing right now because mm -hmm. people are trying to make that the line. And now, Oh, even going as far as um, trying to make certain cases, you know, convictions not eligible. And it's just like, stop. Mm -hmm. Because access to higher education in prison is not, punit is not should not have a punitive um, orientation at all. This is value to life experience. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's what a liberal education is. Absolutely. So, uh, really uh, perverting what it means to have a liberal education overall. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I want to pivot here um, a little bit and, you know, not too far from what we're talking about, but uh, I know you have a project um, that you've been working on uh, called Point of Triangulation, and uh, I'd love for you to say something about that. Oh, sure. So uh, I, I'm an artist. I keep trying to find ways in which to funnel my research into um, product uh, projects that can be um, experienced by people beyond academia, you know? Because mm-hmm. uh, I feel like in my experience with academia, people, they write and speak to each other for each other. Mm-hmm. They don't write and speak um, for the movement, not necessarily. You know, there are some that do. Um, and I, you know, I can just, I, off my, off the top of my head, you know, I think of Ruthie, Ruthie um, uh, uh, Wilson, Gilmore, you know, Gilmore Wilson. I think of um, Miriam Kaba. Those are folks that write in the academy, but also for the movement. Um, just to name a few. Um, and I want my um, my research to have an artistic um, avenue. And so, point of triangulation is a research project that started in a class that I had with uh, Professor Deborah Willis, and she's a art historian, curator, and photographer, um, you know, uh, royale in, in, this, um, in, in all over. And her class was called Black Body in the Lens. And in it, she taught us about the, uh, how Frederick Douglass had a beautiful view about the role of photography to change how Black people were being viewed largely like the role of photography to change the dominant narrative about Mm -hmm. at the time of the Civil War and at the time of the end of slavery. And so he encouraged soldiers and other people to get their photo taken um, because he felt like the eyes could tell the story and do and talk and and change that narrative. It's really exciting because I did, I knew of like most people, just an abolitionist and a prolific writer and a speaker and a, and a, um, you know, in that vein, I, I didn't know about his belief about an understanding about photography. So I asked the question, could photography be the same thing for the former incarcerated? Mm-hmm. And point of triangulation then is basically a, a research experiment that is an artistic outlet. And I juxtapose people in carceral clothing, white t-shirts, gray sweats, white tennis shoes, and juxtapose them against a picture of themselves in a place of power with the people in power, the people of, um, that empower them and strengthen them uh, around the things that empower them and strengthen them. And I have them looking directly at the viewer with direct eye contact um, because I want to see if this idea of the eyes works, right? To look deeply into the eyes and see the truth of the individual. Um, it's designed to get the observer, not this is not about former incarcerated people being worthy of anything, mm-hmm. right? No, this is about to get the observer to sit back and look at the stigma that they will ascribe to the person on the left, but wouldn't necessarily to the person on the right and ask themselves why. Yeah. Wow. Why? Why would you? Uh, why would you weaponize stigma against this person once you know they're formerly incarcerated? So it's an exhibit designed specifically to get 
the larger population to reflect on the stigma that they weaponize against incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. And I, I added that with the photography is added with oral history interviews that are that you can listen to in headphones, snippets of their into oral history interviews. Their words are on the walls as well. Because um, I'm trying to pull out and get the observer to recognize that they produce stigma. Stigma is not external to them. We, mm-hmm. You are an individual making stigma when you when you um, treat formerly incarcerated persons a certain way, exclude them, and create applications that say that if you've been formerly incarcerated, you can't get a rescue dog mm-hmm. you know, from a shelter. Mm-hmm. These, these asinine um, exclusions that come out of what? Yeah, they come out of the they come out of the social consequences of criminal convictions, and I want people to yeah, to reflect on them and check themselves on. Yeah, so that's what point of triangulation is about. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So it was, it was, um, the best. It was the best fun. It was the best fun because I loved all of the people who participated. I made sure I got white folks, black folks. Latinas, you know, I got men who were older and guys younger and women who were younger. And guys, I, I just made sure that I represented America. Mm-hmm. So that people could look at those photos and say, that, that, they're me. They're mm-hmm. me. And do a check on themselves as a result. Mm-hmm. So it's a project I'm really proud about. And I'm glad that it's going to open up again at Beyond the Bars Conference in the first week of March. It, was, it, it opened for a short show at NYU Gallatin Gallery um, last fall, um, and it's going to open up again here um, in March, the first week of March at Beyond the Bars. Fantastic. I was just going to ask you, how, where can folks uh, see it? I mean, I knew it, but I wanted you to, to share that. But um, yeah, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. And I think that um, the idea of being confronted you know, and confronting, looking someone in the eyes and having to interrogate your own assumptions um, and, you know, or at least begin to interrogate your own assumptions and maybe feel unsettled by what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, what may be happening to you, what you're thinking or feeling in that moment is a really powerful thing. And that speaks to what art can do for us, right? Particularly in this moment and in this space that art is not something that's tangential to the work that we're doing on abolition, that it's central to that work. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. I totally agree with that. (laughs) Uh, I think art has, um, simply because it is, it moves outside the the, um, academia really easy Mm -hmm. and um, be it a, a visual and an auditory, be it a, whatever kind of experience it is, I, art is is one of those things that can break all the rules, right? Yeah. And the rules of engagement. Like if I'm going to write a paper, I have a certain rules of engagement as an academic, but art can break a lot of that mm-hmm. and get to the deeper stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And And it it gets to, you know, um, what you had me thinking about there just now is that it, in terms of rule breaking, that it's also about, you know, 
exploring not just the limits of our imagination, but going beyond those limits, right? To imagine possible, right? And I think that that, I mean, you know, I'm an artist, so it's like, we could talk about this all day. Um, and, And for me, I think that that's, that's the power in creating something like this. And I'm excited. I can't wait to see um, the exhibit. I've only read about it, so I haven't seen it in person yet. Um, and, you know, I can't wait to, to chat with you about it again uh, once I actually, you know, see it and hear the stories. Because it, I think what you're doing in terms of documenting people's oral histories um, is something that is just deeply important. Right. Like this is a way to, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Mia Mingus's work, but, you know, her um, her uh, blog is called Leaving Evidence. Right. And to me, that's what it is. We're we're leaving evidence of, you know, what is happening here. Right. And that speaks to the fact that we're looking at this beyond, you know, where we currently are, that this is a long term you know, project, and we want other people to think about this, and you know, generations to come to to look back at it. I know I was um, the last few days. I've been um, steeped in in the work of Ida B. Wells, and I was going into the archives and looking at photographs and old photographs of her, um, and mm. just it's so incredible to see you know like postcards with her picture on them. Right. And and her handwriting. Right. Like that's just, you know, like I'm looking at the digital, you know, uh, versions of these things, not the physical ones, um, but still being, you know, moved. Right. And thinking about, you know, her writings and the broader context of this and, you know, all of that. And I think that, you know, it's not quite the same thing, but you get what I'm, you know, hopefully you get what I'm saying. Um, makes uh, makes some sense. No, there. I totally get it. Yeah. I, totally get it. I'm, I'm, I think um, arts based re- art based research, um, which I uh, I took a class while in grad school that kind of t- get, talked about it. Arts-based research is kind of uh, what's the basis of like Anna Devere Smith's work um, on creating ethnodramas, where you take the oral history, you take those oral history interviews, and um, you really break down the themes in them. And you, uh, during your coding process, you break down the themes in them. And um, in the process of an ethnodrama, you know, those themes are then woven into scripts, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the point of trying that training gave me a basis to really think about how I could weave uh, what what um, like um, quotes that I chose from their oral history interviews to kind of be peppered and thematic on the wall. And I mm-hmm. think arts-based research has so much value to um, the work that we're doing right now. I mean, in, in the movement in general. I mean, it's opening up the it's opening up everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. It. And and it's called and it's called point of triangulation because I mean I know the answer, but I want you to explain it. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. So there's a red line. I, I didn't talk about the red line. Um, there's a red line on the floor, and the pictures are are oriented in a V shape. And the person's on the left and the same person's on the right. And there's a red line on the floor drawing the uh, a connection between the two points. And, and so it's called a point of triangulation because 
once the human being steps onto the red line, then they must know that they have completed the triangle and as observer is also producer of whatever mm-hmm. they whatever comes out of that reflection by looking at the left person and the person on the right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, and that's, that's not a passive, that's not a passive thing, that you are no. an active producer active, in very active. So you can't yeah. blame, you know, news media, you can't toss it off. I'm really trying to get down to the down to the level of the individual, their personal, have them reflect on their personal ways in which we stigmatize one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we can, you know, we can think larger structural, we can talk about the larger society, we can talk about, you know, where your family always did it. But um, I really want the individual to do an individual account. Mm-hmm. That's the only way we will really break it. Where you won't, where a formerly incarcerated person won't ha- won't have to walk into, um, walk into a, a dog shelter, <laughs> and, yeah. and speak to get a dog, and yeah. have to be stigmatized and and walked through and excluded from yeah. something that they have already quote unquote paid for. But in reality, they're saying no. The pay must be perpetual, ongoing, and for life. And yep. I want to contest that. This project mm-hmm. is trying to get people to recognize it's at the level of the individual. Yes, it's legislations and the systems, um, but uh, it's at the level of the individual that I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, the last point you made really resonates because one of the things that I explored in my research and where I basically end is, you know, to ask when does reentry end. And it's not an original question. Other researchers have asked that question. I just don't think that people really think about that, right? That reentry is a perpetual process rather than, you know, it's like, are you reentering forever? Um, are you always considered, you know, um, a quote unquote ex offender or, you know, a former this or a returning citizen? When do you just get to be? Right. <laughs> when the fuck is it over? <laughs> exactly. But but that's a perfect example. I, I sat in parole and watched a sister walk in through briefcase, purse, sunglasses, professional, fly. And she went up to the thing and asked the lady and she said, Where is for officer so and so and so and so? Is are they here? I have an appointment. And the lady's like give me your ID and have a seat. And she was like, no, you don't understand. I'm just here to pick up a piece of paper that says that um, I am cleared uh, with y'all so that I can go get my real estate license. And the lady says, give me, okay, go over and sit down. She said, no, you don't understand. I have, I have a short window. I have a meeting to go to. I'm just trying to pick up a piece of paper. She said, well, you won't get nothing until you sit down. And, and the lady sat down and the lady purposefully like ignored her right for a while so then the lady comes back up to the room she says look i have been home for over 20 years you do not need to treat me this way and i was like wow home for 20 years she said all i'm trying to do is get my real estate license and and i only all i need is this piece of paper she said why can't you just simply help me and i was like wow 20 years home yeah. Trying to have a career. Mm-hmm. And they're reinscribing it, reinscribing the taint of criminality 
the stigma in real time. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there and I just wanted, if, it, if, it, if I felt comfortable with that space, and I never do, I probably would have reached out to her. But we're like not allowed to talk and no. you can't have your phones on. You can't eat. You can't drink. You can't be human. And you have to sit here for hours and hours. And I just, Ooh. my heart went out to her because I was like, yeah. yeah, she's thinking exactly that. When does it end? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the point is, I mean, at, at least one of the conclusions that I drew from, you know, my work was that it, it doesn't. And the way that we no. have imagined reentry in this country and many reentry programs um, is that, you know, just to keep the thing going. Uh, whereas, you know, the question that I have for folks um, that are working in that space is how are you making your work obsolete? Like when, you know, you should be thinking about how you put yourself out of business, you know, (laughs) and it's like if we had a magic wand and we got rid of it, you know, rid of this thing uh, tomorrow, what what is your what next? Right. Rather than, okay, I can benefit from this thing and and keeping it going right now. But anyway, um, I don't want to get too far off, but I think that that, you know, that's definitely um you know, a, a, a critical piece of this entire thing that, you know, that you're doing and that you're talking about um, today. Um, there's something that you uh, talked about um, at the Mumi conference and you were on a, a couple of panels. Um, and I remember you um, talking about, you know, exceptionalism um, with regards to mm-hmm. you know, formerly incorporated mm-hmm. folks. And I think that that, is something that I would love to hear more of um, from you, mm-hmm. you know, regarding that that notion um, and something that I don't think we talk about enough. Yeah, yeah. I, <sighs> you know, it's it's really hard sometimes because you want anybody who's doing this work right should be moving forward if they can and bringing someone else alongside and developing, continuing to develop leaders organically within their own sphere of influence to um, to move the movement forward, both formerly incarcerated and non-incarcerated, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, need to be, they need to be producing people alongside so that that myth perpetually gets unraveled. That um, there, because the idea of the black exceptional being is one of the reasons why a lot of people sit around and say, oh, wait, oh, oh, racism isn't happening anymore. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a couple of black society. Oh, it, it isn't, things aren't as bad because look at so-and-so. Things are not as bad for minorities or oppressed people or for incarcerated people because look at so-and-so and so-and-so. Yeah. And I think Oprah and, you know, Oprah and Obama, and it's like, why are you complaining? Look. <laughs> right. Sorry. And we have to fight. We have to fight that and contest it with bringing others alongside uh, other people, other stories. It can't be just you, right? It, it, it needs to be how you are, how you are growing other leaders who can, in your camp. And um, to 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 go alongside because I think that in my camp, the people that I roll with, we all have bachelor's degrees. We're all formerly incarcerated. We all have advanced degrees. Several of us are artists. Most of us are published, right? 
So there is no, I'm not the, you know, there's, I, I refute that simply by talking about my larger camp. Mm-hmm. Um, they own businesses. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's just like, stop. Stop it because it's, it's your easy out and I won't allow it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I won't allow them. I won't allow them. I won't allow it. I won't allow it because, um, and that's the main reason why I also make a point of staying in contact with former, with incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. folks that I write right now today because you don't ever want to drink your own Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. You don't want to ever get it twisted and get off message. No one ever get think that you know it is you when uh, people come along and singify you and objectify you till they've gotten from you what they want and then they're gone. Mhm, mhm. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I just refuse to be objectified. People who know me know me that I've walked away from film projects. I've walked away from. I've walked away from uh, being on TV. I've walked away from print media because I'm not about are interested in being objectified and signified yeah yeah um, as if yeah. i'm something uh, uh, unusual i'm sorry there are a slew slew of formerly incarcerated people who have phds and people of color mm-hmm. so just stop it. Stop it. and because so yeah. uh, in the beginning when i came out you know and that and that foolish article came out people were like trying to signify and objectify me as if i was some sort of unicorn I was like, I'm sorry, um, because I've been in contact with people, writing people, um, learning about the larger community of uh, formerly incarcerated scholars who have been writing and publishing. I knew better, and yeah. I didn't allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to use you. They will use you for their own objective. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Use uh, you, consume you, and it's tokenizing and demeaning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like you can be and I, I see this happen often. Um, and, you know, I I don't know that I hold any sway with, you know, with anyone. But, um, you know, I've been asked um, by some folks in the past and it's like, well, what do you think? Should I do X, Y or Z? And I'm like, you want to think about that. Right. Because they will use you for the moment uh, until the next shiny thing comes along. and then they forget you and you know yeah, yeah uh, I, I i i one of the ways in which i tried to do that when i first came out is insisting that if i gave a talk or something like that that it was on the the work mm-hmm. right this wasn't um come see the michelle jones show exactly this was like i'm going to talk to you about research i'm going to talk to you about the history project i'm going to talk to you about um the advocacy i'm going to talk to you about constructing the future I'm going to talk to you. Um, I actually recently gave a talk that people thought expected to hear my story. And I told um, several vignettes of other stories. And they Mm. were like, I noticed that you didn't talk about your story. And I'm like, yeah, because I wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's also. I was here to to present my research. And these are interviews that I did that speak to the same issue without having to um, bleed. Um, mm-hmm. my life uh, for uh, consumption. Absolutely. Now, where, now, now, let me be, let me qualify that though. Sometimes you need, there are cases where telling your story and, um, is right and appropriate and that we should be doing that. But I'm, all, I'm differentiating between the, the groups that are 
where telling your stories for consumption in this room that's only going to remain in this room versus telling your story that is designed to mobilize and move people to change and consider new public policy or legislation or yeah. um, advocacy that's going to change things on the ground. There's mm -hmm. a difference, right? Um, me coming to some room for so I can bleed out for you um, is not what I'm interested in doing if, if, if this is what this is about, right? Exactly. But if you guys are going to use this story to go mobilize some people to, to make real change, then let's go and do that, yeah. right? Yeah. Then I'm down. So it's, I have to qualify. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I'm, uh, I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like, you know, um, I get that. And I use, you know, I use this platform um, for a number of different reasons. And I have told my story on this platform. Um, but, you know, if I get invited to something and it's like they want you because you have two sons, you know, because I have two sons in prison who are serving life, um, then it's like, OK, what is your motivation? What do you want from me? You know, who's going to be in that room? What what are you yeah. know, what do you expecting? And, you know, because one, it's already difficult enough and it requires a tremendous amount of emotional and physical energy to yeah. do, do this work. Right. And that's not something yeah. that we um, we take stock of publicly a lot. Like many of us will suffer quietly or, you know, with um, with confidants and what have you, but not with, you know, not with other folks, not uh, something that we put out to the world. So asking folks to um, to do that, you know, is extractive. Right. That's extractive. So extractive. Thank you. You know, Thank you for saying that. And, and That's my term. I love that because it just captures what it is, particularly in the acad in, in academia, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're going to go and they're going to go into a place and they're going to do their research and they're going to go back to their offices and write their books and their articles, exactly. but they don't bring it back to that community so that community can use that information exactly. to change their, uh, their lived environment. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's I don't ever want to be that. Your story so ever want to be that. You know, so that I can make career moves and, you know, and then that's it, right? And then you talk about it in some kind of detached way that there was this you know, right. person or thing really because it is thingifying as you said um earlier, but yeah, I mean, it's just and it's infuriating and um right now I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity for folks um, you know, because being formally incarcerated, you know, is something that people are wanting to hear more from folks. And it's not a way to silence folks or say you shouldn't be out there talking in any way. I want to be very clear about that, but also understanding and problematizing that notion and complicating our thinking around, you know, this idea that, you know, every talk is a good talk, right? And every appearance is somehow benefiting you or helping you. And it's not, it's not. And right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's the thing that we, each individual have to also like assess, like how much wear and tear on your body is it worth? Um, and how much of your time is it worth? I mean, if if um in in the sense that if you have obligations at home or your job at home, is it is it worth taking off work? You know, and you have to weigh those individually. Um, because, I mean, 
if you've got people like, and for example, in the history project, and the Indian Women's Prison History Project, there were people who wanted to come along and um, kind of co-opt the work that we were doing uh, to write articles about what we were doing with the History Project, about our research that we were doing. And Dr. Kaufman had a, um, who was the leader, uh, who was the leader of the History Project, said, "If you're going to co-author with a lady, that's one thing, you know, mm-hmm. but you're not going to come in here and." Um, use them, you know, you learn all about their research so you can write about their research instead of helping publish, publish, publish with them about their own research that they're doing, right? Exactly. And, and she had that line. She had that line. If media wanted to come and consume us and thingify us, you know, they, they really weren't allowed. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, we were telling people no in prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, some people be like, well, we just want to be on TV. We just want an article written. We didn't want it that bad. If you mm-hmm. felt like you had to objectify us, uh, in, uh, for example, if you felt like you had to know the nature of my crime, that I, uh, my case, in order for me to talk about Pell Grants or the nature of my case, in order for me to talk about um, Rhoda Coffin in the 18th century, in the, in the 19th century and 1881 investigation. If you felt like you, one was required to do the other, like I had to, in order for me to be a historian or an academic or a scholar, you, you had to be, everything had to be filtered through the lens of, of criminality. We said no. And Good. people were shocked. Good. Good. I'm they glad like, you did. What, like, what? What do you mean? You don't want this press? No. Yeah. Peace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, uh, it, again, but you know, we live we live in the age of you know Instagram and getting your cloud up and all that stuff, and it's like everybody wants you know not everybody, but a lot of people want um want their moment in the spotlight, and you know, I think that requires, as you said, you know, the individual to interrogate um what their motivations are and what it is that they're really trying to do. Um, It's, yeah, there's times when you can use your platform and your story um, for the greater good. Uh, And then there's times when folks are using you and being able to differentiate between those two things, um, I think is really critical and important work that we don't talk about enough. Well, we should, and we should, because the difference between allowing some um, uh, media person um, uh, um, to objectify you is, is what we, we term uh, epistemic violence. Mm-hmm. Because you're taking my right to be knower and you are filtering that through the taint of criminality, right? And you're saying, I can't be a knower of anything else unless you know, I'm a, you know my criminal past. And um, that's epistemic violence. And so what I've been trying to advocate for and what you see happening across across the country everywhere now is that people are beginning to epistemically privilege the voice of the formerly incarcerated and, mm-hmm. and not just for, um, and not just for um, in, in purposes of media, but also for movement building, right? Mm-hmm. On the ground and program development. And um, that's really exciting um, because now, my lived experience and my story is actually being privileged to actually make real change. And I'm down for that all day long. Yeah. I'm not down for that, uh, that, that violence that requires me to speak through 
the the path the the chain of criminality in order to have a voice about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's keeping you it's keeping you in that box and saying that we can you know the only way for us to experience you or to get to know you is through that. Right. And right. if that's the only thing that matters, then we haven't moved beyond, you know, yeah, beyond, we haven't gone very far. Right. We haven't gotten very far. <laughs> right. right. And yeah, I don't know. Um, do you have any other thoughts, anything else you want to share before we close out the hour? Um, no, I, I think um, it's been great talking with you and kind of, um, you know, walking through the many things that um, is going on right now. Um, I guess I would, I had to have one shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I work for, I don't work for them. I work with, I'm on the board of Worth Rising and that um, Bianca Tylek is our ED and she is doing, and her team is doing tremendous work and bringing an awareness. I think she's one of the only like, organizations in the country that is bringing the awareness to corporations about where their retirement money is invested in, and are they investing their money into corporations that support mass incarceration? Mm. It's like the area that we have done very little thinking about is these mass corporations, these geo groups, and other things that mm. have um, that have the world investing in them because they're private, they're public corporations. Mm -hmm. and 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 we haven't thought much about like how do we weaken them long term is to pull out pull out corporations retirement investments in these corporations pull out uh, foundations investments in these corporations pull out banks investments private corporations investments in these corporations and i think that um that work <laughs> That and on, on top of the uh, uh, on the groundwork with um, getting um, free telephone calls, moving yeah. to get uh, states to stop charging for that thing, charging people for video calls and um, phone calls. Um, that is the that's the on the groundwork is so critical right now, and absolutely, um, we don't talk enough about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, and of course, we've got big things going on, you know, bail reform and just, you know, so many other yeah. big things are happening. Yeah. Um, but I do want to, I do want to do, I do, do, I do want to lift up the work that work life is doing. That's brilliant. Um, and we'll make sure that we uh, post that information in the show notes. So we'll get a link and, uh, and other info from you uh, so that folks okay. can, you know, contact them and, uh, and support them in whatever way, you know, they're, they're asking for. That would be amazing. But yeah, Michelle, thank you so much for spending this hour with me and, you know, taking time out of your week uh, to be here. I know, you know, that's um, at least I, I appreciate it. And I know it means a lot uh, to folks. Thank you. We'd like to thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. 
If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always reach us at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>